What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Welcome to the future. Life is good, but it can be better. And why shouldn't it be? All you need is to want it. What's the biggest clue that that clip is set in the 80s? Is it New Order's Blue Monday, the almost sinister emphasis on self-improvement, or that the voice kind of sounds like Max Hedrum? You know, I'm eager to see what Kristen Wiig and Pedro Pascal do as the villains of Wonder Woman 1984, but here's my thought. Why not Patrick Bateman? Why not? He'd be perfect. Yeah. That clip from the trailer for the DCEU's latest offering, one of the most anticipated films of the new year. This week on the show, we're all about the future. It's our 2020 movie preview. All that and more. Think about finally having everything you've always wanted, Josh. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Wonder Woman, not the only one stuck in 1984 this year. We'll share more about our time travel plans to the glorious 80s a little bit later in the show. But first, we're going to jump right into our 2020 movie preview. And we're actually going to begin by looking back to January 2019, Josh, see how those queries and those predictions played out. And it turns out you could have recycled a couple of yours for this list. It's sort of tradition. We, we seem, at least I seem to be drawn to titles that have some chance of coming out in a calendar year and then never do. Right. So I just roll them over to the next year. Okay. Well, it makes your life a little bit easier then in terms of preparation. Let's see how you did. I'm going to throw your questions at you and you can answer them now with the benefit of hindsight. We've had mm-hmm. 2019, of course, play out. We've dissected it with our best films of the year over two parts, I think, 17 hours of recording, roughly. And of course, last week, our best scenes of 2019. Let's see how you did with your predictions and some of the things you were most curious about when you posed them last year. Number five, your question was, will zombies be as good for Jim Jarmusch as vampires? You were thinking, of course, of the dead don't die. They were good for him, but not as good as vampires. I I do believe Only Lovers Left Alive is the better film. Okay, I agree with you. Completely. Number four, and I hate to do this because I'm just setting myself up to be called out at some point, but revisiting this question, I'm going to say it, the laziest question in the history of our movie previews. Incorrect. And it gets bonus points for being possibly the most fun (laughs) question. This is the weakest connection between movies anyone has ever made on this show. You ask, can Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory possibly be as good as Michael Bay's Pain and Gain. So just, I love it. just going off two words that still, are roughly the same. Still makes me smile, and it's all <sighs> worth horrible. it. Think of all the listeners smiling it's horrible. right now, Adam. It's about that, not the connection for you. <laughs> okay, well, I'm only going to smile if you have the right answer to this question. Boy, it was close. I mean, these are That's both not it. these are both top ten films of my given year, and of their given year, and I don't know what it means. If you looked at the rankings, I think I had Pain and Glory at six. I don't remember where I had Pain and Gain. The point is, they're both where really, I had it. really good films. But yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna say that Elmodovar managed okay. to do as well as Michael Bay. You're Might have give given him the edge, him. maybe? Just I, to... I think I'll give him the edge. Okay. Moving we'll on. wait for Michael Bay's late career ruminative mm-hmm. film, and, and then maybe he'll pull ahead. Yeah, can't wait for that. Your number three, should we trust that Regina Hall makes smart choices and knows how to make questionable premises sparkle? This one. Incomplete? No, no. No, did you see it? Yeah, yeah. I can speak to Little, which is what I – I should say it's what former production assistant Andy Mitchell was thinking of. This is a question he threw out there. You, you're getting a sense of how much work I put into my list last year, Adam. <laughs> oh, I grabbed yes. one from Andy. Yeah. The other one, I saw the word pain one and I was done. you pulled I was done from and hugely amused. Places I can't describe. <laughs> and this one, um, I have to say – and I don't know how Andy feels about this if he caught up with Little, the body-switching – comedy where Regina Hall plays Mm -hmm. uh, a tech corporate tech giant who suddenly transforms into the body of her. I think she's like seventh grade or something like that. Uh, Not good, Adam. No, it was not a good Hmm. film. Um, It was not particularly good for uh, Regina Hall. She's only in like the first 20 minutes and the last 10 about. Um, It is good. Issa Rae. It's essentially an Issa Rae vehicle Hmm. because she is her assistant. And so she's in the entire film. She has 
good chemistry with Marseille Martin, who plays the younger version of the Regina Hall character. Those two have some nice moments together, but um, yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm not gonna say Regina Hall can't make smart choices based on little. But this may not have been the best one. All right. Your top two, these should be fairly brief answers. Will Wendy prove that Ben Zeitlin is a true talent or expose Beasts of the Southern Wild as a fluke? We'll find out this year. We'll find out in about a month or two, I believe. Wendy is almost here. Same goes for your number one. What movie will be my number one of 2019? We tried to predict what movies we thought would be on our own individual lists at the end of the year. You thought that perhaps Kelly Reichert's first cow would be your number one. And... That was misguided on your part, it seems. Well, based on the fact that it didn't come out. Exactly. On the quality of First Cow, which we will also be able to assess in March, I want to say. So another one. So I wasn't, you know, it was just a couple months off there. Okay. But hopeful. And my favorite film of 2019, as listeners know, we just went through all this, was Us. That wasn't, you know, too far off either. That was among my five most anticipated of the year. So I had First Cow. I had Wendy. I had us on that list and also Knives Out and The Nightingale. Mm-hmm. So my questions. Okay. I'm ready. Let's start with number five. Adam, which movie about industry disruptors playing on industry disrupting platform Netflix? Oh, my gosh. I'm not I'm barely making it through this. Are you I'm not laughing. I'm my not laughing better? at all, Adam, but it's a good question. Which one will be better? High Flying Bird or Velvet Buzzsaw? Well, you can't say it, but the answer is really easy. It's definitely Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird, a film I enjoyed considerably more than Velvet Buzzsaw. Yeah, I liked it more than Velvet Buzzsaw. I think for me, I would qualify both as disappointments, though. Not highlights of the 2019 movie year for me. All right, number four. What will the world's greatest living actor, sorry, Daniel Day-Lewis, do with Joker? Tell me, Adam, what did he do with Joker? Well, you said the word just a few seconds ago. Disappoint me. You have high, so high expectations, huh? Mainly for, for Joaquin Phoenix. Maybe and you're not still so much holding the movie. that the performance was not good. The performance is another key reason why I don't like the film. And I <sighs> never say that about Joaquin Phoenix. Oscar-nominated Joaquin Phoenix. Let's let's just move on to a patented squeeze six films into one question. Yes. Kempenar, number three. The Hawkesants will resume most resoundingly with which film? The Truth, The Kid, Tonight at Noon... Adopt a Highway or Stockholm. So five films there. Five. That's right. Only five, Josh. Ethan Hawke, hoping the Hawkesons was going to continue. I think it took a little bit of a downturn last year of those movies. I only saw one of them. That was Stockholm. Talked about it briefly on the show. Had really high expectations based on the true story of the robbery that gave us the term Stockholm Syndrome. And directed by Robert Boudreaux, who made Born to be Blue with Ethan Hawke. I loved that film and loved that performance from Hawke. Stockholm was fine. I think Adopt a Highway maybe went straight to VOD. I did not watch it. Tonight at Noon is directed by Hawke's old collaborator on Hamlet, Michael Almereda. That film looks like it's going to be a 2020 release. Did not come out. The Kid did come out, Vincent D'Onofrio directed film about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid with Ethan Hawke playing Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid played by Dane DeHaan, and despite my interest in it, it kind of got no buzz at all, I think a 45% on Rotten Tomatoes, and we had other more important stuff to see, and I still haven't made time for it. Finally, the one that I thought was going to be the big winner here, for sure the big Ethan Hawke film of last year, The Truth, from the great filmmaker Hirokazu Kureda, and we'll see because it didn't come out last year. It's going to come out this year. I think a March release for The Truth. Juliette Binoche, Catherine Deneuve, along with Ethan Hawke, and it's Coretta's first English-language film. I think it played in Venice last year, was released in Japan, but we're finally going to get its U.S. release this year. So we'll see if maybe that film does revive the Hakkasans. All right. To be determined on a couple of those. Number two, will the fifth woman ever nominated for Best Director also become the sixth? You are holding out hope for Greta Gerwig with Little Women. Can I get an F in the chat? As the kids say, can I get an F in the chat? We just talked about this. Last week on the show, I think, the failure of the Academy to recognize Greta Gerwig this year as Best Director, certainly well-deserved. I didn't know that back when I was posing this question. I had no idea that Little Women was going to be my second most beloved film of the year, but absolutely, she should have been the sixth, and she was snubbed. Is this maybe a Kempenar curse here, this question I hope you not. put on her? I hope not. I either. will never put Greta Gerwig on another list <laughs> if that's the problem. 
your number one, the movie that you thought would be your number one film of 2019. It says here, Shirley. Yeah. Remind us about Shirley. Shirley is the movie that is a biopic, but not really, about Shirley Jackson, the writer. And it's supposed to be a bit of a psychological thriller, but about the writer, Shirley Jackson. And about all I remember about it is that Josephine Decker is the director who made Madeline's Madeline, I think, a couple of years ago. I am completely blanking on the cast of Shirley, which is another reason why I was intrigued. Michael Stuhlbarg is in it, I believe, as Shirley Jackson's husband and the great Elizabeth Moss. So good in 2019 in Her Smell, also very good in a supporting turn in Us. She is Shirley, the title character. And that's enough, really, if it was just Elizabeth Moss. But of course, crossing over into that meta realm, blurring those lines between reality and in this case, fiction, did really excite me about the film. It seemed like it would be catnip for me. And I'm still excited about it. Looking ahead here to 2020, I believe those who are going to Sundance this year, we will not be there. They'll have a chance to see Shirley. We look forward to your reports. If you do see it there, let us know what you thought. Feedback at filmspotting.net. So now as we actually get into our 2020 preview, I think maybe the big question, I hope I'm not stealing one of your questions, Josh, is simply will 2020 possibly be anywhere as good as 2019? Yeah, I'm not going to hold it up to those standards because I was thinking about this as we were doing our preview. It seems even obviously we can be surprised and I'm not saying I'm disappointed at what's ahead, but even looking at the big name directors that are on these lists and these previews, there don't seem to be quite as many as there were in 2019. Hmm. So that's one sign perhaps that it might not be as great of a year. But again, Last year could have been a record one, so um, this year could be just fine. So again, we do these previews in the form of these questions. Instead of straight counting down our most anticipated movies, we like to think about what intrigues us the most as we're looking ahead to the cinematic year. What's your number five, Josh? My number five question. With After Yang, will Koganada be the latest Golden Brick winner to go on and achieve even greater things. We were kind of talking about this, Adam, a while ago. I don't know if it was on air, I forget, but about the track record for Golden Brick Mm -hmm. winners that we've seen. It's pretty good. And think about Ryan Johnson, who is not a Brick winner, but his film Brick is the namesake for the award. He went on from Brick to do The Last Jedi, to do Knives Out. Yorgos Lanthimos is also an alumnus. We gave him the award for Dogtooth. He went on to make The Lobster and other films. How about Joshua Oppenheimer, who followed up his doc, The Act of Killing with The Look of Silence, which some considered to be even stronger. Then there's Sean Baker, who made Tangerine, won the Brick, went on to make The Florida Project. And, of course, I expect something special in the future from 2019's winners, Joe Talbot, director and Jimmy Fales, writer and star of The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Now, the winner of the 2017 Golden Brick was Koganada with Columbus, this meditative tone poem about family, about friendship and architecture, and it's set in the Indiana city of the title. This year, he's offering After Yang. It's based on an Alexander Weinstein short story, and IndieWire's 2020 preview had this description. It's a slice of contemplative science fiction set in a future where a father and daughter attempt to save the life of a robot family member after it stops functioning. The cast here, Columbus's Haley Richardson is back, along with Colin Farrell, Goshefta Farhani, and Jody Turner-Smith. Turner-Smith was a breakout star in last year's Queen and Slim. So, yeah, definitely expecting more great things from Koganada with After Yang. I don't think, here's, we're playing this game again, I don't think it has a specific release date, but from what I read, production wrapped early last year, and it is deep in Mm post-production, so hopefully it will be out soon. Yeah, looking to be a 2020 release, but we will see if that's the case. And yes, certainly for me, one of the most anticipated movies of the year because of Koganada, because of that golden brick pedigree, of course, and Colin Farrell, Haley Lou Richardson, I'm glad he's reteaming with her, and Columbus, I think I had as my number three movie of 2017, after Yang should be great. My number five question for 2020 is if a movie year doesn't include dollops of driver and plenty of pew did it really happen if you look back are you because love the word play thank you if you look back on 2019 this was kind of the year of adam driver and i would put florence pew in the conversation as well both Oscar-nominated Florence Pugh, Best Supporting Actress for Little Women, Adam Driver, Best Actor for Marriage Story, both well-deserved, but 
this was the year of Adam Driver even before that Oscar nomination when you think about The Rise of Skywalker, The Dead Don't Die. I didn't see The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, but I know there are some fans of that film out there. And the report, I was mixed on, but I like his performance in that quite a bit. And when I think back on the year, even though this didn't come up in the 437 moments I mentioned last week on our best scenes of 2019 show, when I think of indelible moments of the year, I think about him saying, ghouls. (laughs) Just that word, just that line delivery, ghouls, from that Jim Jarmusch film. And also... That moment that has now become a meme, but back when we saw it, it hadn't. That's that little bit, that little physical bit that happens near the end of The Rise of Skywalker, where I guess I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's out there in the public sphere at this point. Be very careful. It's a moment where Kylo Ren slash Ben Solo is going to do battle and he takes the lightsaber out from behind his back and he's got like eight former henchmen of his around him who are about to attack him. He just does this little shrug like, okay, now, now what you got, what Mm -hmm. are you going to do? Right. And I I remember (laughs) loving that moment so much. I sent a note to Sam, our producer. I said, as if he didn't already win 2019, he gave us that shrug, which then, as I said, went on to become like the Ben Solo challenge. I think it started on TikTok, and we learned later that, It's maybe a direct callback to Han Solo, something that Harrison Ford does in Return of the Jedi. So he gave us a ton of great moments of 2019 beyond the fact, like I said, if I was spoiler alert, because we're going to do our Oscar show next week. But if I'm handing out my Oscar for Best Actor, it goes to Adam Driver. I want more. I need three or four more Adam Driver performances this year. And I guess I should be grateful that we're going to get it looks like at least two performances from Adam Driver this year. One is the Leos Carax film, Annette. He's the filmmaker behind Holy Motors. It stars Marion Cotillard. The plot description is a stand-up comedian and his opera singer wife have a two-year-old daughter with a surprising gift. And he is also going to co-star in Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. This also co-stars Ben Affleck. The screenplay is written by Affleck and Matt Damon and also Nicole Holofcener has a credit. And the description is King Charles VI declares that Knight Jean de Carouge settle his dispute with his squire by challenging him to a duel. I think Affleck is the knight and Driver is the squire. So bit of a strange brew there. Interesting. But we're going to get two from Driver and that's going to have to tide us over. I don't know if it's enough from Florence Pugh. The only film I can find on her IMDb list right now is Black Widow. And the trailer's fine. Scarlett Johansson also had a great 2019, and she will be enough to get me to go to that film. Florence Pugh is added bonus. You look back at Midsummer and Little Women and Fighting With My Family, Lady Macbeth before that. She's one of those versatile actresses who I think really can do anything. You could put her in any kind of genre, in any type of performance, and she'll nail it. But Black Widow's all we're going to get right now from Florence Pugh, and that disappoints me. Yeah, my hope for that is that there are plenty of scenes of those two together because that's what looks most promising about it. Hey, yeah. these these actors have to rest, Adam. Yeah, give, maybe, give them a break. Maybe they do. The Last Duel, going back to Driver, supposed to come out around Christmas. Annette is TBD at this point, so it might even be a 2021 release. Black Widow, that's definitely coming out May 1st for that movie in which she plays at least from the trailer, there's a moment where she calls Scarlett Johansson's character Sis. Right. She's playing her sister. Very thick Russian accent, but I'm going to trust Florence Pugh with that. All right. My number four. Will I have the courage to watch Candyman in preparation for Candyman? <laughs> now, I was there's a another fan. Candyman? Oh, yeah. You haven't heard about this? No. That's what I'm here for, Adam. Broaden your horizons. Uh I was a fan of horror when Candyman came out in 1992, but still something about the movie's premise was just too unsettling and kept me away. Basically, the idea is if you say the title of the character's name five times in a mirror. Don't do it. He'll appear and kill you. Wait, it gets worse with a hook. He wears on his arm. Just wasn't into that. So Uh I never I never made my way to see Candyman. Now, in that time. My affection for horror has only grown, yet I still haven't pushed myself to sit through the original in its entirety. I've seen snippets here or there, but not the whole thing. And it's, I don't know if you'd call it a cult classic now, but it definitely has a following at this point. So I'm very interested. The time has come because, yeah, 2020 offers Candyman. That's the title, but it's considered a spiritual sequel. I've seen it described that way. Um, 
You know, I, later is directing I just, it? Yeah, exactly. I just call it a reheat. So yeah. um, that's what this is. But my interest in it, it goes beyond just taking care of some blind spotting, some personal blind spotting here. The original was set amidst Chicago housing projects and this follow-up, which comes from a script that's co-written by Jordan Peele. It takes place in the same now gentrified neighborhood. So some interesting dynamics at play there already. The director you asked about? No, it's not Linklater. Mm. It's Nia DaCosta. Maybe not a familiar name, but she made her feature debut last year with the quite good Little Woods. I I did enjoy this film. I don't know if we gave it any time on the show. Uh, It starred Tessa Thompson and Lily James as sisters by adoption who are trying to scrape by amidst the oil fields of North Dakota. So very different, a much more realistic setting in that film, but it was incredibly atmospheric, had great performances as well. So yeah, I'm eager to see what Nia DaCosta does with Candyman, eager to see the first Candyman. I, I'm, I'm assuming we're not going to be doing this together, probably, Adam. But, no, uh, probably not. The movie opens June 12th, so we are going to get this one. I was working at a movie theater in high school when Candyman came out, so I saw it like the night after you close everything down yeah. and it hasn't started yet and you watch it as a group there in the movie theater. And I remember then afterwards going to the little room with the ice and the pop and there's a mirror right oh, no. in front of you. And I remember Did being you legitimately, legitimately like, I'm not going to say it. No, I'm not going to do it. I don't trust it. You I think I out. think the Candyman would come <laughs> and get me. So the movie sufficiently scared me. My number four movie question is not the one I'm going to pose to you right now, Josh, but We'll see if you are aware of this fact. Who is doing the score for the upcoming Pixar film, Soul? Do you I know the answer? Know this, no. Okay. Well, I'll give you the answer. It's like Jeopardy in the form of my actual question. How will Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross darken up Pixar's soul? Interesting. These are the collaborators who gave us some of the best scores of the past decade, The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, yeah. more recently, still can't get it out of my head, Watchmen on HBO. I'm and still not feeling Pixar. I here. know. It doesn't feel Pixar. <laughs> and I use that phrase, darken up in quotes, actually, because that was what Trent Reznor himself said during an interview. There's very little information out there about the score or what they might be trying to do with it. The story is about a guy, a character named Joe Gardner, I think voiced by Jamie Foxx, who is a jazz piano player. And something happens to him. He has an accident and it sends his soul, if I'm reading this correctly, to the U seminar which is described as a place where souls learn the ins and outs of existing on Earth. So jazz is obviously a key part of this film. And John Baptiste is also a collaborator on the score, provides a lot of that hmm. music. And if you watch the teaser trailer, I believe that's what you're hearing. Yeah, is John Baptiste. that sounds right. You're definitely not hearing Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor. So I really can't predict at all what it's going to be. But in that interview, someone asked him the obvious joke, the go-to joke, I guess, which is our Pixar audience is going to be introduced to something like the Nine Inch Nails classic Closer. And his response was, who knows? We'll see if we can taint Pixar and darken them up. And (laughs) I want to know what that's going to sound like. I want to hear what that Reznor and Ross touch is going to do to a Pixar film, which this one seems like a film in the same vein as Inside Out and all their best work, which is entertaining, but also provocative and is a movie that's going to tackle some big, provocative intellectual questions and existential questions. And I think it seems like a good fit, even though it actually, on paper, makes no sense at all. Well, I'm excited about the experimentation, and I'm excited about the original idea. That's when Pixar does their best. And so, yeah, it's good to see Soul's one of my most anticipated of this year for that reason. So definitely looking forward to it. We only have a short time on this planet. Become the person that you were born to be? Don't waste your time on all the junk of life. What am I doing? Spend your precious hours doing what will bring out the real you. The brilliant, passionate you. That's ready to contribute something meaningful into this world. Pete Doctor directing that film and Soul is going to come out. June 19th. My number three question, will Dick Johnson is dead be as moving as our time machine? 
Now, my number 25 film of 2019, for whatever that is worth, was Our Time Machine. Mentioned it once or twice last year, this beautiful, sad documentary about a Chinese artist who tries to connect with his father, who's suffering from Alzheimer's, and he does this through a fantastical autobiographical play. Well, a somewhat similar autobiographical story seems to be at the heart of Dick Johnson is Dead, which comes from director Kirsten Johnson. Uh, According to IndieWire, here's the description. The project reportedly uses various filmic strategies to venture inside Johnson's father's mind, as well as the nature of their bond. Now, if the name Kirsten Johnson doesn't immediately ring a bell, she's the veteran documentary cinematographer who made her feature debut with 2016's Camera Person. Uh, This was a collage essay film based on footage she gathered from throughout her career, uh, made my top 10 list. Camera Person also featured Johnson's mother and her struggle with Alzheimer's. So this is clearly a subject that Johnson feels passionate about and has already made great art from. Chances are she'll do that again with Dick Johnson is Dead. This will be playing at Sundance, so I imagine it will get picked up there and a release date will be set. That's a fine question, though. Every film spotting listener knows that art and death are my domain, and I don't know what you're doing asking my questions, Josh. Hey, did you ever see our time machine? Let's move on. I'm calling your bluff then. (laughs) I was going to call my own bluff later. We will get to that, and we might have even more on Dick Johnson is Dead, which I believe is going to be a Netflix release in 2020, and that transitions nicely into my number three question of the movie year, which is, after Marriage Story, The Irishman, and The King, and yes, I know that The King has not been hailed the way Marriage Story and Irishman have, but I was a big fan of that David Mishad film starring Timothy Chalamet. I'm wondering what will be the cream of Netflix's crop this year. They, maybe a few weeks ago, put out their lineup. Not a lot of dates there. We don't know when they're coming out, but they put out the 15 to 20 films that they are expecting to drop this year. And I'm setting Dick Johnson as dead aside for a second. Here are my top three contenders to be the best films Netflix has to offer. Mank, David Fincher. That's really all you need to say. I'm not going to get a new season of Mindhunter, it sounds like this year. I'm going to have to settle for Mank, which also scratches my movies about movies itch because it's about the writing of Citizen Kane, Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried star in that film. Spike Lee has a new joint coming out about four African-American vets who returned to Vietnam. They're looking for the remains of their fallen squad leader and the promise of buried treasure. Chadwick Boseman, very good actor, obviously. Paul Walter Hauser, very good. And Richard Jewell, Delroy Lindo, and Jonathan Majors, for me, one of the real breakout performers of 2019, the co-star of our Golden Brick winner, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Couldn't wait to see what he would do next. I don't know if he has any other projects coming out first, but I love that Spike has cast him in this film. And my third choice is I'm Thinking of Ending Things. This is a road trip film that comes to us from the great Charlie Kaufman. My two favorite Jessies star in it, Jesse Buckley, Amazing and Wild Rose last year, Jesse Plemons, Tony Collette, also David Thewlis. And it says that the road trip becomes a, quote, twisted mix of palpable tension, psychological frailty and sheer terror in the latest from Charlie Kaufman. And we would expect nothing less from Charlie Kaufman. So I think those are the three most exciting of the films Netflix plans to put out this year. And we'll see if they have as good a year as they did in 2019. More questions about the 2020 movie year to come. And we'll have an answer for those of you wondering how we will follow up last year's very fun 9 from 99 retrospective review series. Stay with us for news about 8 from 84. Is it real? first and only 
drafts of music. But they showed no corrections of any kind. Not one. He had simply written down music already finished in his head. F. Murray Abraham Salieri and that clip from the best film of 1984, according to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and many other pretty smart people. It's one of those rare occasions when the Oscars may have gotten it right, Josh. You threw in the many other very smart people uh-huh. because you know, <laughs> you know I'm going to point out we did our top five films of 1984. It I wasn't on my list, Adam. So clearly that I overrides. Blocked, I had blocked that out of my memory. That overrides any Oscar notoriety. No, it's fine. It's it's good film. So good film. A Nightmare on Elm Street. It's no, That's night, the one. It's yeah, no Nightmare I mean, on Elm Street. A clear best picture winner well, from 84. I mean, if the Academy was with it. Yeah, of course. Last year, you may recall, we had our nine from 99 series. We reviewed nine films from the great movie year 1999. It truly is one of those hallmark cinematic years. Everyone looks back on it as one of the best ever. I think when we did our top five movie years here on the show sometime in the past three years or so, 99 may have made both of our lists. It was definitely a year that got discussed a lot during that top five. And we had so much fun with it that we thought, why not go back another decade? We thought, let's look at the 80s. And there are some really great movie years from the 80s. It was pretty tough, but we did settle on 1980. Four, Josh, your thoughts on a retrospective on that year? Yeah, the reasons for doing it. Well, I mean, basically, we just wanted to be kids again. And in That's 84, true. I was 10, you were nine. Um, mm-hmm. So that sounds like fun. Some of the titles that came out definitely hit that nostalgic sweet spot. And it might be fun to see if any of these hold up. But also, when we were talking about maybe, you know, maybe do we jump back to the 50s and do a movie year from that decade? Or do we do the 70s? We also realized, well, in 2020, there are a few big titles coming out that are connected to 84. We already mentioned at the top of the show, Wonder Woman 1984, which comes out in June. How about Denis Villeneuve's Dune, which is going to come out later this year? 1984 gave us David Lynch's adaptation of the Frank Herbert novel. And then a 1984 film that is not reviled as Dune was by many people, but loved by almost everyone. I think Ghostbusters. That's getting its... Yet another reheat this year, which I don't know how many. Not a technical term. Was there Ghostbusters 2, right? Yeah. And then was there a third? No, just that. Just the one from a couple years ago. ago. And then now we're getting Ghostbusters Afterlife. It's actually a sequel, Josh. If you'd done your homework for this list, they're all the same. They're all the same. They're just trying to trick us. (laughs) Maybe so. Whatever they call them. It comes out in July. It's directed by Jason Reitman, son of Ivan. Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver are all listed in the cast. You don't see them in the teaser trailer. You do see Paul Rudd, Carrie Coon, the great Chicago stage actress, who actually, as we're taping this, I'm going to see this Saturday night in Bug at Steppenwolf. Can't wait for that. She is also among the players. And we also considered that there was a little bit of buzz recently about Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club getting a director's cut release just last year. They called it the Cotton Club Encore, and the original is a blind spot for both of us. So this new release giving us an excuse to look back on the original from 1984. We are calling this 8 from 84. Why not? If you've got a good thing, Josh, why ruin it? Now, we did actually have only nine films that were part of our 9 from 99 series. But as you alluded to during our preview earlier, I like to cram things together. Mm -hmm. A little bit. I like to maybe do a little bit more work fill in as many titles as I can. We definitely have more than eight films that are going to be part of this series. Yeah, we're going to do Lynch's Dune. I'm very, very excited about that, having never seen it. But then we're going to pack together two in one show, Ghostbusters, which I mentioned, and pairing that with the, I'm going to say, much, much better Gremlins from Joe Dante of that year. We'll kind of hold up both of those and see as these fantasy comedies, uh, how do they compare to each other is gremlins really better i think so but we'll see yeah after we it's look gonna at be a monsters matchup there if you will both released in june both big hits from that summer of 84 and we'll see ghostbusters v gremlins who comes out on top so we'll give coppola's cotton club its own show we'll give the best picture winner amadeus its own show and we'll also spend an episode on jim jarmusch's breakout film stranger than paradise is this a blind spot? 
Not Adam, a blind spot, but one of those films that feels like a blind spot. It's been so long. Yeah, I think the same for me, maybe 10 years or so. Uh, boy, this next one, I I feel like I saw at some point when I was maybe, maybe it was 10. I don't remember seeing it in a theater. This was a VHS experience for me. But John Carpenter's Starman with Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen, I know that has uh, a pretty fervent loyal following over mm-hmm. the years, even though it's not considered a cinema classic. So I'm eager to take a look at that. I don't know. I might throw out the C word. I love Star man, or at least I did as a kid. Don't remember seeing it in the theater, but remember watching it maybe on HBO probably a hundred times back in 84, 85. So big fan of that film and eager to see how it holds up. We also have another film that was a real driving force behind me wanting to do this series, and that's Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. Honestly, when we talk about blind spots, cinematic blind spots, the movies you're really kind of embarrassed to admit you've never seen, Once Upon a Time in America is either at the top of the list or very close for me. It's a three-plus-hour gangster epic. It stars Robert De Niro. It spans four decades. I don't know if that sounds familiar or not, so we're tying that back even to another film from last year, of course, The Irishman. And then we are also going to do three of the best music films of the 80s. You've got This is Spinal Tap, the greatest mockumentary of all time, Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, Probably the best concert movie of all time. And a movie that's a blind spot for you, Prince's Purple Rain. Yes, a never seen Purple Rain. I suppose you could call it about, I'm going to say the best musician of all time, and that's Prince. So I'm excited for that trio of rock films as well. It's going to be a good lineup, Josh. So people might be wondering, well, what about these perhaps more well-known 84 films that we haven't mentioned? Well, we've covered over the years, some of these. The Terminator in 2017 on episode 636. These were probably sacred cow reviews, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. A Nightmare on Elm Street, as we mentioned, which I love. We did that in 2016 on show 609. We also, the same year, did Brian De Palma's Body Double. Oh. That was rough. Not so fond memories about no, Body Double. And, and, I, and I know we both know people love that film, so it's never fun to kind of not come out on the positive side. But that was on episode 590. And then this was before my time. Um, you did review, Adam, The Times of Harvey Milk back in 2006 on yeah. episode 133. Producer Sam, then co-host Sam, discussed that movie with me. And it's a great film if you haven't seen that doc. I think it was part of our documentary marathon at the time. We're going to kick off this series in two weeks, and we're going to start it off with John Carpenter's Starman. So if you need to visit that film or revisit that film, it is available on demand on most platforms. And if you want to see that entire lineup and follow along, just go to filmspotting.net slash eight from 84. While you're there, you can cast your vote in the best of 84 poll. We started off the nine from 99 series the same way, wanted to gauge what the general consensus was in terms of the film that you hail. Forget what the Academy said, what you believe, what film spotting listeners believe is the best film of 84. We're giving you these options, which somehow don't include Footloose or The Karate Kid or Beverly Hills Cop, so someone's getting fired. Well, you could put it in other. If you feel that strongly about The Karate Kid, vote other. Otherwise, here are your options. Amadeus, Ghostbusters, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Stop Making Sense, The Terminator, or this is Spinal Tap. And yes, you can vote other if you don't like those options. And you're right. We recently, fairly recently, did our top five films of 1984. Yours is there. You'd go A Nightmare on Elm Street. I have at least three of my top five there. I think I did have This is Spinal Tap at number one, just edging out Amadeus. Stop making sense in the third slot. So you've got some good contenders there. We would love to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment in the polls, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. That, again, is in two weeks. Next week on the show, we are going to do an Oscar special. Michael Phillips, the great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune, will join us for that. We're going to do our picks for who will win. More importantly, who should win? And even more importantly, and I'm using Michael's nomenclature here from the Tribune, the stupid omissions. Yeah, and I like what I like about that is everyone is always up in arms uh, about how these nominations are terrible. It's the end of the world. But you don't always hear, okay, 
but what would you have substituted then, mm-hmm. right? Who, or who would you knock out? Maybe that will be something we'll have to challenge ourselves is, okay, I want this person in. Here's who I'm going to take out. Um, so, yeah, that should be, you know, the Oscars are something we just, we don't take too seriously, but we do have some fun with. I, you know, we watch it as a family every year. And I think if, if you try to tell yourself this will not determine the future of cinema, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it has its effects, can't entirely not take it seriously, but but yeah, if you just have a little fun with it, which we hope to do on this show. Yeah, and we'd love to hear your picks in any of those categories. We might just share your feedback on the show, feedback at filmspotting.net. So at the same time that we're going to celebrate the great movie year 84, we're going to kick off that series. We're going to be looking back on our own history. We're going to be celebrating 15 years of film spotting at Chicago's Music Box Theater. We're going to talk. We're going to watch a movie. We'll talk some more. We're going to have a few drinks. And you're going to get to see Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo in 35mm, a movie that Sam and I didn't watch until we had started this show way back in 2005, a movie that was part of our Westerns marathon. It was a real blind spot then. I'm guessing a few people might show up, Josh, who have always felt like they need to see it. And what a better way to see it than with us, and not only us, but... Michael Phillips, the next picture show host, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson are all going to be there. John Wayne, Angie Dickinson, Dean Martin, my rifle, my pony, and me, they're all going to be there on the big screen. Perfect reason to finally check Rio Bravo off your list if you haven't seen it or come see it again. Now, I'm torn. Do I? I caught up with it in 2017, as I mentioned before, and absolutely loved it. Part of me wants to just you know, have that experience again in the theater or do I, am I a professional? Do I go watch it at home one more time, take copious notes yeah. so I can lecture everyone there? That's, I'm, that's what I'm going to well, do. Yeah, I, I know that. So <laughs> I think I might just show up and have fun. You should do that. <laughs> a perfect balance. If you are interested in attending that event or learning more about it, you can find all the information you need and buy tickets at filmspotting.net slash events. That's filmspotting.net slash events. This film spotting tour stop, we're very happy to report, is presented by our old friends at Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, a movie you've been dying to see, like Rio Bravo, perhaps, or one you've never heard of before, there is always something new to discover. With movie, every film, each one is hand-selected. So that means you don't have to spend time looking for something great to watch, then actually watching something that maybe isn't so great. This is like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Try movie free for 30 days at movie.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting, and you'll get a whole month of great cinema for free. Every two weeks over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you'll find a new movie pairing. They tie together a recent release and a classic film. I mentioned the host, Tasha, Scott, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. They recently paired Little Women, the 1994 version, up against Greta Gerwig's 2019 adaptation. That show is available right now. And next week, you can look ahead to Peter Weir's 1981 Australian war film, Gallipoli, a blind spot for me. And they're pairing that with the Oscar frontrunner, it seems at this point for Best Picture, 1917 from Sam Mendes. Also a blind spot for me. And yeah, that should be an interesting episode. I don't think from what I've seen that Scott Tobias at least is very high on 1917. Mm. I know he's a huge Weir fan, so that should be a good pairing. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. And there is more information at nextpictureshow.net. is a word. Tenet. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. Coincidentally, Tenet, the word that got us into the studio tonight here to record as well. We get back into our 2020 movie preview with that clip from the trailer for Christopher Nolan's Tenet, one of the most anticipated films of 2020. That's what it says in my notes. I think it probably is a film highly anticipated by us and most cinephiles. You think that's a fair statement, Josh? It's It's among my top five anticipated films of the year. Okay. Well, with all we had going on last week, the 2019 Rap Party, we had to talk about the Oscar nominations. We had to announce the Golden Brick winner. We did completely forget to mention the current film spotting poll. I mean, in the hierarchy, it probably should have been higher, but what are you going to do? The question was, a lot of disclaimers and parentheticals here in this question, Josh. What original? And that means non-sequel, non-remake, 
non-franchise, 2020 film are you most looking forward to? The options we gave you were the new Christopher Nolan film starring John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, and Michael Caine. That comes out July 17th. We also let you consider Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. There is no release date yet for that one, but the cast includes Saoirse Ronan, Willem Dafoe, Tilda Swinton, and, of course, regulars like Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Adrian Brody, and Jason Schwartzman. And finally, there's Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, that's scheduled for a September 25th release, a movie that is set back in the 1960s starring Anna Taylor-Joy, Thomason McKenzie, Matt Smith, and Terrence Stamp. And I suppose this still qualifies as original, but I swear I just read somewhere today that this is kind of Edgar Wright's version of Polanski's Repulsion, Hmm. but not a direct interpretation of it or certainly a remake of it. So. We're going to let it stand here as one of our three contenders. And if you had another original film in mind that you are anticipating more, you could vote Other. Josh, how did it come out? Well, Other was in last place with 7%. And you know what got the most votes was Denis Villeneuve's Dune, which, of course, is not original. So not really. Not reading the fine fine print there before voting. 11% of the vote went to Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. 30% went to Wes Anderson's French Dispatch. And that means Christopher Nolan's Tenet won the poll with 52%. Tom Morris says, no Pixar love, soul. Animated movies don't count. It's true. I took Sam a little bit to task for that. One of my questions so far here on our 2020 movie preview, and Soul would certainly qualify as original, Josh. Andrew says, I went with Nolan due to the four words of the plot description, time travel, espionage, and evolution, and probably Washington, Debicki, and I have always loved Kane. And because Wes is just cheating with that cast. Holy cow, it just goes on forever with talent. Jonathan Anderson writes in, not surprised to see Tenet in the lead given that fantastic trailer, but Edgar Wright doing, here you go. I've been told his riff on Polanski's repulsion is too good to pass up. Adam Grossman in Vancouver, British Columbia says, yes, Tenet, yes, French Dispatch. I can't wait for both, but my less high-profile three would be The Return of Koganada, the much-celebrated creator, at least in film-spotting circles, of the simply wonderful 2017 Golden Brick winner Columbus, my own favorite movie of that year. Back teaming up with the equally wondrous Haley Lou Richardson, add some Colin Farrell and a sci-fi story, and what's not to be excited about? And did Sam just go and mention in this week's Film Spotting newsletter a new movie on the way from Andrew Dominic based on a fictionalized chronicle of Marilyn Monroe? The Jesse James cultists will be there on opening night. It's funny that he says that, of course, because Adam Grossman is the leader mm-hmm. of the Jesse James cultists. Yeah. I believe he's the listener who basically single-handedly with a few of his fellow gang members got us He's pushing. to do that revisit, that sacred cow revisit of Jesse James recently on the show. Pushing an agenda once yep. again, Adam. Darren says, the word original in your question instantly brings to mind Charlie Kaufman, even more original than his screenplays for being John Malkovich, adaptation, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind are the movies he not only wrote, but also directed, Synecdoche, New York, and Anomalisa. So although I absolutely can't wait for the movies you listed in your poll, I had to go with Kaufman's next movie, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. The title makes it sound even bleaker than his earlier movies, but I'm pretty sure we can count on it being original and brilliant. You'll recall, of course, just moments ago earlier on the show, I suggested that was going to be one of the big three from Netflix this year. Definitely high expectations from me. And a lot of the titles you heard there in our listener feedback were brought up in the first part of our show are number five, four and three questions of the 2020 movie year. Josh, we're ready then for your number two. All right, let me ask you a question that requires looking back on the past decade and then trying to project into the future too, Adam. You ready? Mm. Will Elizabeth Moss be even more dominant in the 2020s than she was in the 2010s? And you I'm could take argue, that bet. okay, you think she can be? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the way that 2020 is starting out for her looks like there is potential. But let me go back first. You could argue she was the best actress of the 2010s. Mad Men. I mean, her Peggy was as crucial to that series as Don Draper. How about the lead role she had in Jane Campion's crime series, Top of the Lake? And then, of course, Hulu's adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. Want to go to the big screen? Okay, we can go there, too. There was The One I Love. Adam, you liked the movie. 
much more than I did, but Moss is great in it. And then all of her collaborations with Alex Ross Perry, in which I think she was always the best thing and which culminated in last year's Tour de Force performance in Her Smell, which made your top 10 list, Adam. And don't forget, I think as you mentioned earlier, she just squeezed in that great comic supporting turn in my favorite film of 2019, Us, as well. So she had a busy, great year last year, and that would seem to be, that whole 2010s resume would seem to be hard to top. But here's what she has in 2020 alone. The thriller Invisible Man, which could be, you know, when you look at all those titles I mentioned, she hasn't really had a mainstream breakout. I guess Mad Men, you could consider that, but on TV. But The Invisible Man might be something like that in the thriller genre. Uh, At Film School Rejects, their 2020 preview, they describe this as an Elizabeth Moss one-woman show. So that's pretty much all I need. And then you mentioned it, Adam. Surely the film that you looked forward to or thought might be your favorite from last year got pushed to 2020 from Madeline's Madeline director, Josephine Decker. That stars Moss. And yeah, she's in Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, one of the many big names in that anthology film. So I'm in for all of those as Elizabeth Moss begins her potential rain. A couple of dates here. French Dispatch, as we mentioned, to be determined. Surely, as we mentioned, we'll be at Sundance. The Invisible Man is right around the corner, February 28th. I'm scared. You don't have to be scared of him anymore. He was a sociopath, completely in control of everything. He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Are you okay? Someone sitting in that chair. All right. I can't wait for that, just based on Moss alone. My number two is a question that I can now be pretty brief on, Josh, because you already talked about it earlier. I think it was the film that was the basis for your number three question. And you'll recognize that this is now a familiar question. Every single annual preview that we do, I find a film that seems to be right in this sweet spot for me. And I wonder... If Dick Johnson is Dead will be my favorite movie of 2020 or my favorite movie of all time. And you took me to task for not seeing Our Time Machine, and that is a movie that I think was the basis for this question last year, certainly one I thought about. There's always this film, again, about art, that intersection with reality, focusing on mortality, just how we sort of process our lives and find meaning in it all through our work through artistic endeavors. And the movie that was in this slot a couple of years ago was one that I never did see, the documentary Spettacolo. And that was about some people in an Italian village who kind of told the story of their lives by portraying versions of themselves in this annual tradition and kind of, again, made sense of their everyday existence. I feel like the story of director Kirsten Johnson trying to process her father's inevitable demise by staging these fantasies of what death could be and what the afterlife could be. It it just sounds fascinating. I honestly don't have any real sense of what this could actually look and feel like on screen, but definitely after Camera Person, her first film as a director, I have a lot of faith in her to find meaning in a lot of these little bits of humanity and these everyday encounters that she has with her father. And it'll be interesting to see her kind of stretch out in this fantastic realm, perhaps, right? Because that's not what camera person is at all. It is about these everyday moments and the kind of mundane aspects of life. And she captured that beautifully. And we saw how she turned that into that montage that camera person is. And we as viewers did a lot of the heavy lifting, honestly, in terms of drawing meaning out of that. And here is a filmmaker. She's now the one trying to find meaning in it all. So I'm, I'm eager to see it. And it just seems like the kind of film for me that ends up on a top 10 list. Yeah, it'll be the handling of, I guess you could call original material. That'll be interesting to me because before, as we said, she's using all of this footage that she had compiled over her career. And now a lot of it, maybe some of it will be previous home movie footage, but you get the sense it's going to be newly captured imagery as well. It might be, I'm imagining with her eye, it's going to be the same Mm -hmm. sort of everyday, but poetic imagery that she does see so well. But yeah, what will she do? with new stuff. I can't mm-hmm. wait to see that. All right. Your number one movie question. Will Dune bury Denis Villeneuve? <laughs> I mean, it's it's already already kind of buried David Lynch. He made it all, all right. He went on to do some pretty yeah. good things. He's done okay. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a tough, tough 
hit for him. His infamous 1984 adaptation uh, of the Frank Herbert science fiction novel starred Kyle MacLachlan and, yeah, more memorably, probably Sting. I haven't seen that. As I mentioned, I'm looking forward to correcting it. I am also looking forward to this cast, Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Mm. and Zendaya. I mean, those are all- I'm in. Great names. Yeah. Um, Just the thought of them all together, I'm having a hard time, but maybe Dune is the place to do that. Um, So that should be interesting. And, you know, I am actually, I'm optimistic about this because, you know what I liked even better than Villeneuve's arrival was Blade Runner 2049. And uh, he continued there, another earlier sci-fi classic. I think he did it quite well. You know the visuals are going to be solid with this. I like that cast. The story, well... We'll see. Villeneuve shares writing credit with Eric Roth and John Spates. No idea if that was a team or kind of a patchwork thing. Um, From what I understand of Dune, it's some of the story elements that can be a bit laborious and cumbersome Mm -hmm. if they were able to wrestle that together. And Villeneuve brings the imagery to it and has that cast. Could be good. Hopefully it won't bury him. Yeah, it could be. Certainly Villeneuve is a hook. That cast, as you said, fantastic. And Maybe another hook for me is just that it is going to force us to reckon with the original Dune as part of that 8 from 84 series, because I think it's still the only David Lynch film I've never seen. I've just never had a burning desire to actually check out Dune, and we are going to rectify that this year. And we're going to stick with the nostalgic theme, and we're going to stick with 84 here a little bit as we go to my number one movie question of the year. It is, which sequel, 30 years in the making, will most make me feel like a kid again. Is it going to be Ghostbusters Afterlife? Or is it going to be Top Gun Maverick? Oh, boy. Ghostbusters, Josh, it is, you can call it a reheat if you want, and that may be what it inevitably turns out to be, but it is, my understanding, technically a sequel. It is a movie that takes place in the same universe as the original Ghostbusters. It is now 30 years later. Some kids with their single mom, move into a farm in Oklahoma that they inherited from their late grandfather, and then a bunch of unexplained phenomena happens, earthquakes. They discover the gear just like in their basement or something from the trailer, the old original Ghostbusters gear. I'm guessing there's going to be some busting ghosts that happens. I hope over so. The course I of really the hope so. Josh, now, the cast, somewhat promising. You've got Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things and It as one of the kids. Carrie Coon, I mentioned her earlier. Paul Rudd in it. And at least based off IMDb, we're going to see at some point Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Ernie Hudson, Sigourney Weaver, and Annie Potts. I have watched this trailer. I've watched the trailer a couple times. I'm going to have to say that it does absolutely nothing for me whatsoever. And I really am not excited at all to see it. So maybe my alternative sub-question here is, could Afterlife be the Ghostbusters for my kids? That's maybe the only interest. Is it possible that I take my two youngest, the 9-year-old and the 12-year-old, to Ghostbusters Afterlife, and they have the kind of rapturous reaction to it, seeing those kids similar to them in age on screen, that I did watching those guys shooting those weird blasters, whatever they were, and catching ghosts in the original version. I don't know. It seems doubtful. I'm looking for a silver lining here, Without Spengler, you know, the late great Harold Ramis, (laughs) I I don't think the chances are good for that. But, But you can give it a try. We'll go from Ghostbusters Afterlife, though, to Top Gun Maverick. And look, if I have to turn in my film spotting card or whatever cinephile card I'm supposed to hold, I don't care. If you've watched the trailer for this, and certainly if you've seen the original Top Gun, maybe you saw it two or three times in the theater back in the 80s as I did, you have to be excited watching this trailer just play all of the hits. You get that bell, the Harold Faltemeyer score right away, the voiceover detailing the litany of Maverick's many exploits as a pilot. Tom Cruise, of course he's riding a motorcycle. Of course he's wearing that leather jacket. I would hope so. Yeah. You get shots of Miles Teller and Glenn Powell, who basically, I think I said after watching the Linklater film, Everybody Wants Some, that was the first time I had seen him on screen. I just wanted him to be my best friend. And I still think we can make that happen, perhaps, after I see Top Gun Maverick. There's definitely, at least based on a two or three second blip in the trailer, a sing-along scene in a bar, because of course there is. There's an accident, 
there's a funeral. There are shirtless men in jeans at sunset playing, I'm pretty sure, beach volleyball, Josh. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was shuffleboard. And I was no. Say, no, please, no. Let it be volleyball. I mean, it could be. It could be shuffleboard. I think it's beach volleyball. I feel the need, the need for speed, Josh. And if you play your cards right, you can be my wingman. You can be my wingman. Okay, June that's 26th. That's enough. Top Gun Maverick. Well, this one, it's definitely going to be the more nostalgic experience for you. Basically, Cruise doesn't age, so you're right there. It's yes. like you're going to be like the same year as the original Top Gun automatically. Mm-hmm. How many times did you watch this trailer, Adam? I, I don't have to answer that, do I? Okay. I I try, as you know, to avoid trailers. I have made a point to watch Top Gun mm-hmm. Maverick probably about 10 times. Uh-huh. That's what I thought. So Ghostbusters Afterlife, if you care at all. July 10th is when that movie is slated for release. Those are our top five questions of the movie year. I'm guessing you have an honorable mention or two, Josh. Yeah, because there's a few titles here we haven't mentioned at all unless they flew past me. But an honorable question is, will there be a reason for Steven Spielberg's West Side Story after John Chu's In the Heights? I mean, obviously, we can have both. And I hope both are great and we can enjoy both. But... You know, it's hard not to feel more excitement for Heights, the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical before Hamilton, and it's being directed by Crazy Rich Asians, John Chu. I'm a little more excited about that, I got to say, than Spielberg's remake. Hmm. But again, we can have both. We can have both. My other question, can James Bond be saved by Anna de Armas, Lashana Lynch, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge? Because those are the only three things that are interesting to me about No Time to Die. Yeah. I want to see it. And those are three big reasons why. Is that all you got? That's all I got. Okay. Well, you touched on a couple of mine already. We have our PA in studio with us, Kat, big fan of West Side Story. She was going to throw hands if someone didn't mention West Side Story eventually. So now I'm going to mention it. And my question is whether or not Ansel Elgort has the chops and has the charisma to play Tony in West Side Story. Now, I know, Josh, based on your prior viewings of the original West Side Story, you're not sure. Not a strength. You're not sure he'll need to have charisma because Richard Boehmer perhaps didn't. No, but it, right. Exactly. It'd, so be, it'd nice be nice if, he if this, did. New, this new person did. I'm a little bit skeptical, huh. but I'm I'm ready to be surprised. So, yes, eager to see both West Side Story and In the Heights. You mentioned Denis Villeneuve's Dune. My question, not that inspired, is whether or not he can solve it as it obviously befuddled David Lynch. I'm curious how good Kristen Wiig is going to be as a villain in Wonder Woman 1984. And I did have a reference to a Marvel movie already, Black Widow, in my question about Florence Pugh. I guess I wonder if Marvel's artsy director choices are going to pay off this year. And I really mean pay off for audiences, pay off for viewers like us, not so much for Marvel, the people making these movies. But I'm thinking of Kate Shortland, who made the very good film from a few years ago, Lore, making Black Widow, and also Chloe Zhao, We've talked about some Golden Brick winners on this show already who made the great The Writer. That was our runner-up a couple of years ago, and she's making The Eternals coming out in 2020. So those choices have me most eager to see those two films. Do we want to run down quickly our most anticipated films? I think we probably mentioned most of them, but I did put together a list here. At the top is still First Cow. If it was my most anticipated last year, I got to have it up there this year as well. But it got competition, of course, if there's going to be another Wes Anderson film. The French Dispatch is my number two. Then I have Tenet, followed by Wendy, the Ben Zeitlin feature. And here, this is one, you know, especially with Sofia Coppola films. I've been burned by this in the past. On the Rocks is supposed to come out in 2020 with Bill Murray. How great is that? So those are my five. And then at the bottom half here is In the Heights. Memoria, that comes from Thailand's at Pichitpong Rastaku. He has Tilda Swinton here. It's set in Colombia, so a little different um, than being set in Thailand. Candyman, I mentioned. Soul has been brought up. A Pixar film. Definitely looking forward to that. And then, yeah, Dune. I'm eager about Dune. Okay. I have a few titles as well, though most of them have been mentioned in our questions. I'm thinking of ending things. Dick Johnson is dead. Mank. And, yes, Top Gun Maverick. Of course, Tenet as well. And some of the others you mentioned, including First Cow, French Dispatch, West Side Story. How about the latest from the death of Stalin director Armando Iannucci? That's the personal history of David Copperfield. But the only other one that 
I didn't think was going to come up otherwise. I thought you might overlook it. Right now, I have it as my number three most anticipated film of the year. It is Koganata's After Yang, just based on Columbus and how beautiful that film was. He's a director whose work I'm always going to be first in line to see. We would love to hear your picks. Again, those are our top five movie questions. What are your questions of the movie year? What are the films you are anticipating the most? Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And Josh, that is our show. It is a relatively quick one. So if you're hungry for more, head over to the show archives at filmspotting.net. You can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. What is the best film of 1984? To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in wide release this weekend, the new one from Guy Ritchie. It is a crime film starring Matthew McConaughey, Hugh Grant, and Colin Farrell. It's called The Gentleman, The Turning, an adaptation of the Henry James horror story, The Turn of the Screw. That's out starring Mackenzie Davis, Finn Wolfhard, and Brooklyn Prince, so good in Sean Baker's The Florida Project. Out in limited release, well, too many titles to mention here, Josh, but one I am going to throw out that's opening at least here in the Chicago area, and I'm guessing a few other cities as well, The Hottest August. This is the inventive documentary that was mentioned as one of the best films of 2019 by both Vulture's Allison Wilmore and Vox's Alyssa Wilkinson on our top 10 of 2019 roundtable. I think they both had it as their number two film of the year. Next week here on Film Spotting, it is our Oscar special. We'll make our picks with the guy who always comes appropriately in a tuxedo to his Film Spotting recordings, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan, sitting right here to keep us on track. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. Our music this week is by Bombay Bicycle Club. It comes from the album Everything Else Has Gone Wrong. More information is at bombaybicycleclub.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.